is Stephanie Paulsell. Um, I'm on the faculty here at HDS. Um, I teach uh, religion and literature and ministry studies. Um, and Professor Khan has been a tremendous colleague for me um, in helping us think about especially um, preparing students for religious leadership in Islam. And um, as Janet Giazzo said last night, he is a tremendous creator of community, um, both among the students and the faculty. And so he has reached out beyond his colleagues in Islamic studies uh, to invite us to chair these sessions, which is um, such, a, such an honor. Thank you. So our first speaker is Arman Siddiqui. Um, Arman came to us at Harvard from the University of Chicago, where she received her MA in Middle Eastern Studies and is now a PhD student um, here at Harvard University in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. Um, she has cross-disciplinary interests in North African political and intellectual history, as well as Islamic social and spiritual movements. Much of her work analyzes the intersection of time, space, and social context in the production and revival of religious texts, movements, and ideologies. We're very well, uh, glad to welcome her to this panel this morning. Arman, Thank please. you so much. Thank you. Um, should I speak from here, or is it better Wherever to... you're most comfortable. Um, okay. Um, can you hear me, or should I turn this on? Is it, is it working? Is it working? I don't know. Maybe it's on, because maybe. it's being recorded, so maybe. Um, so thank you again, and uh, thank you, Professor Khan, Norbert, um, all the conference organizers, and my fellow uh, presenters for what will, uh, I'm sure, be a very enriching conference. Uh, the title of my paper is Perspectives on Politicized Sufism, uh, a case study of the Qadiri Bout Shishia. Uh, the Bout Shishia is a Moroccan branch of the Qadiriya Sufi order that has been increasingly involved in Moroccan social and governmental politics. Uh, with prominent members currently occupying seats in parliament and other elite positions within and beyond Morocco. In this paper, I examine the multiple vantage points from which the Bouchishia order has been analyzed in A, official political discourses, and B, within the Bouchishia order. The juxtaposition of these disparate and at times conflicting discourses within and surrounding a single Sufi order serves to highlight the complexities and challenges that this multiplicity poses for researchers. To examine this, my presentation is divided into two sections. The first section provides a brief contextual overview of the political discourses regarding the Bouchishia order in Morocco, particularly in relation to the monarchy's efforts to produce and promote a uniform conception of Moroccan Islam. The second section, through a vignette of, four, of a few Bouchishia disciples whom I interviews, interviewed, offers insight into these same politics through a different conceptual lens. The core of Section 2's argument is that the politics of this Sufi order is perceived and embodied differently across its participant body, and that disconnects between both state-level and Sufi leadership-level politics on the one hand and the experience on the ground, so to speak, uh, you know, for a group of ordinary Moroccan uh, disciples of this order. On the other hand, it must both be taken into account. So Section 1 is Sufism and the state. Uh, this is a kind of view from above, if you will. Uh, the articulation of Sufism as an essential feature of Moroccan identity within official government discourses has received a lot of attention uh, in recent years. Following the May 2003 domestic terrorist attacks in Casablanca, King Mohammed VI swiftly set out to restructure the religious field through a series of state-sponsored programs and religious education initiatives. 
At the crux of these efforts was a resounding emphasis on Sufism, which was described in government manuals as mahabba, spiritual love, that was essential to Moroccan national identity and which ensured the nation's spiritual security. One month after the attacks on the occasion of Muhammad VI's enthronement ceremony, the King's speech underscored the three intertwined, indispensable elements constituting Moroccan identity. That is, uh, that it's Sunni and specifically Ashari in its creator theology, Maliki in its legal school, and Sufi in its spiritual outlook. And stress that violent extremism is a foreign imported ideology that is both culturally and religiously incompatible with Moroccan Islam and which threatens its spiritual security. The official choice of the Bouchishia order to represent the state's Sufi emphasis and give concrete form to its spiritual security was cemented with the appointment of two high-profile Bouchishia disciples, Drs. Ahmed Tawfiq and Ahmed Kostas, as heads uh, of the Ministry of Islamic Affairs and as the chief officers of the state's uh, new religious education program, which includes initiatives to promote and recruit new members into the Bouchishia order specifically. The question emerges, why the Bouchishia order specifically, and how precisely does the government go about producing the ideal Moroccan citizen under the auspices of state-sponsored officials, policies, and programs? What guarantee is there that a Bouchishia disciple, or any Sufi for that matter, will ensure the country's religio-political security? There is a vast body of literature uh, focused on the idea of promoting Sufism to counter uh, extremism, to promote a moderate, palatable Islam in the wake of oppositional, militant, and extremist factions. Yet the case of the Bouchishia in politics, I think, offers much more to analyze. Not merely the official uh, manufacturing and co-opting of a Sufi order by the state, but also the Sufi order's own stakes in actively shaping the country's religious and political fields. So it's a reciprocal relationship between Sufism and the state that demonstrates a delicate balancing act between two very powerful institutions, um, argue, arguably uh, the, the kind of two major powerful religious institutions, uh, the, Mo uh, the Moroccan monarchy and the Mahzen, its associated elite, um, and the Sufi order. Now, the monarchy's choice to allow the Bouchishia order to be at the other end of its balancing act is due uh, in large part to the order's historic opposition to and rivalry with Morocco's most notorious oppositional movement, Adel Walahsan, uh, which is currently the only banned Islamist party in Morocco uh, on grounds that its late leader, Abdeslam Yassin, um, called for overthrowing the, the royal monarchy uh, on grounds of corruption and religious invalidity. The Bouchishia's own stake uh, in keeping Adel Walahsan at bay is also rooted uh, perhaps in a more intimate history. Uh, Abdeslam Yassin was a former Bouchishia disciple who severed his spiritual ties with the order following a dispute uh, and founded his own spiritual movement. So this last point really reiterates why the choice of the Bouchishia in particular, especially in light of other popular, um, highly influential Sufi orders in Morocco, the Shadaliya, Tijaniya, uh, to name a couple. Uh, this brief history vividly illustrates that it is not merely Sufism at large uh, that is adopted for its moderate, um, peaceful voice, but rather one specific Sufi order uh, that is as much a political actor in the religious field as other Islamist parties. Um, it would hence be simplistic to assert that Sufism is a counterweight to Islamism in Morocco, as this particular Sufi order, um, I would argue, is enmeshed in concrete political stakes, rivalries, and, and real bids for power. In other words, there is no denying the politics of this particular Sufi order. 
So aside from these politics at the level of state leaders uh, and the Bouchi Shia elite, uh, it would be remiss to overlook that a number of civilian disciples have also vocalized their order's role in curbing religious extremism, social instability, even patriarchy. Uh, the next section of this paper does not seek to refute these claims, uh, since a number of Bouchi Shia disciples themselves subscribe to and substantiate the state's discourse on Sufism. Rather, I aim to expand the scope of analysis on the Bouchishia through a consideration of the order's other discourses. So instead of continuing to reiterate the political impact that this uh, Sufi state collaboration will perceivably have on citizen self-formation, um, Um, and the suppression of oppositional Islamism, which is often how this order is uh, publicly packaged, uh, this paper asks, how do we conceive of the order's politicization uh, if it is indeed perceived as politicized according to its own disciples? So having contextualized the dynamics playing out from the top, um, I now shift the focus to discourses from below, uh, so to speak. Um, that is, from a number of, of new disciples of the Bouchishia Tariqa who have joined uh, the order in the context of state-sponsored recruitment programs uh, that I briefly uh, discussed mm -hmm. earlier. These recruitment programs have been attracting male and female high school and college students in addition to working professionals across both urban and rural divides. So in this next section, I highlight brief snapshots from a series of in-depth interviews I conducted with female Bouchishia disciples who participated in these new recruitment programs. These programs have been controversial, even according to some disciples, for being uh, politically mediated. And by that, I mean uh, in the sense of worldly intervention. Uh, the order's collaboration with the state to tightly control and inculcate a particular type of citizen uh, is seen by some as spiritually insincere. More controversially, these programs have also been seen as connected to the Bouchishia leadership's uh, personal agenda uh, to supposedly increase its own following um, in direct competition with that of Adil Walehsan and other competing actors. So I consider another approach uh, to studying this recruitment program, one that is principally centered on the participants' interior experiences and the spiritual discourses that they ground those experiences in. Theoretically, I shift gears towards discourse analysis and affect theory, which at least for now have provided helpful uh, analytical launching pads for me. So I begin our, our venture into the ethnographic component uh, of this paper by relating um, a brief snippet of a conversation I had with Aisha. Are there any women in your branch who have recently chosen to join this order, I ask? Aisha smiles but emphatically responds, it's not you who chooses the tariqa, it's the tariqa that chooses you. We are seated in the veranda of the Bouchishia Zawiya, an arresting uh, multi-level compound, the physical profundity of which reflects the order's enormous prestige. All I'm saying, Aisha continues, is that it's saying something that this order is the one you're studying right now. Uh, glorified is God, don't you know that there are no coincidences, only signs. It is how we all come to Allah, despite ourselves and our planning. That's the end of the quote. So by inverting my question and evoking the statement, there are no coincidences in Islam padded by subtle semantic indexes, uh, such as a heavier Quranic word uh, for sign, uh, dalil, that is synonymous with proof and evidence, Aisha demonstrated a, te a technique that I later learned is derived from the fundamental centrality uh, of predestination, qadr, among disciples. Recognizing that each and every event is part of God's immaculate plan provides disciples like Aisha a conceptual framework uh, with which to perceive events concerning both private and public matters, even those that would appear questionable at face value. 
God guides whom he wills. This is often the Quranic verse of choice that is evoked, invoked when sp uh, sensitive topics arise, such as the order's increasingly public dhikr ceremonies uh, and rituals which are open to non-Muslims at sacred music festivals, which is a, a, a pretty controversial phenomenon even for a group of devoted disciples. It is, however, the above theory of Qadr that underlay much of my exchanges with women when asked to reflect on their views concerning the order's active uh, politics, its political activism in Morocco, and to share their, their personal narratives of initiation into that order based on that context. The following narratives further nuance and illuminate various elements of this spiritual reframing, um, so to speak. At 18 years old, Zahra was among the youngest, yet most precocious disciples to have recently joined the order. She joined through a free after-school tutoring initiative for young girls and women, particularly from less privileged backgrounds. After each session, the tutors, who were Buchishia disciples and local leaders, invited all students to join in collective dhikr. It was mentioned that initially, these, these uh, post-tutoring dhikr sessions were optional, but as time went by, the two Ds were expected to participate. Zahra recounted, had it not been for Sukina, her friend, I would never imagine uh, staying after the tutoring sessions and practicing Islam in this way. At first I joined her for dhikr because I was curious. I felt it was a good thing to praise Allah and what do I have to lose? Then something shifted. Then the dream. I then knew that this was always a plan. By God, everything is written. And that's the end of the quote. Uh, Zahra's narrative is striking on a few levels. It underscores the idea of Qadr that I just discussed, but interestingly, it also reverses the linear trajectory of Islamic pious self-fashioning, which ideally places sound intention, Nia, at the forefront of nearly all religious and ideally also non-religious uh, decisions and actions. Yet for over two months, Zahra participated regularly in Bhutshishia devotional rituals without the authorized intention, indeed without even official allegiance to the order or its sheikh. Instead, one could argue the realization of the ritual's va uh, value arrived through bodily engagement with it first, enabling Zuhra to, to, to cultivate a particularly, particular interiority aided by esoteric experiences such as dreams which finally resulted in her conscious, cognizant decision to officially join the order. Although divine interventions like dreams are often unpredictable to their subjects like Zahra, Bouchishia Muqaddimat, which are the local uh, leaders of the, the order that I mentioned previously, often do anticipate, uh, indeed prepare for such interventions. The Muqaddimat thus frequently offer tutoring and professional training sessions free of commitment, except for the request and at times requirement that one participate in vigor afterwards in hopes that informal, uninitiated participation in bodily ritual even one's attendance alone will ultimately inculcate sincere commitment and conviction on all other levels. As Charles Hirschkin analyzes in his classic study of cassette sermons in Egypt, not unlike psychoanalysis, audition is also a technique of self-fashioning predicated on a therapeutic capacity of listening, albeit one elaborated in ethical rather than psychological terms and in relation to a theologically based form of reasoning. Similarly, Bhutshishia ritual is predicated on the premise that even without actively participating, one's passive attendance in activities like the good can be meaningful on a sensorial level. The tremendous emphasis on bodily engagement and presence in virtuous actions is such that the sanctity of ritual gatherings is, not of, is often not perceived as being corrupted by individuals who are neither disciples nor have the authorized intention of participating in such gatherings. It is their physically engaged body combined with the idea of predestination that God has willed them to be there in that precise moment, 
which aids in legitimizing their entrance into sacred spaces that are otherwise strictly reserved uh, for Shia disciples or at least fellow Muslims. This theory also underpins, uh, underpins the order's presence in more contentious venues, such as uh, the Fez Festival of World Sacred Music, um, a globally renowned festival directed by the eminent Bouchashia disciple, uh, Fozi Skadi, which grants uh, foreigners, including non-Muslims, access to engage in dhikr and attend the Bouchashia Sema, which is another ritual. Um, based on the above uh, spiritual discourse, Allowing non-disciples and non-Muslims access to this sacred ceremony is not only viewed as authorized, but according to Ibrahim, uh, a Moroccan disciple and regular participant of the annual festival, quote, it's a very commendable service to less practicing people, allowing their bodies to register such a sacred action, even if they don't intend it, end of quote. Uh, what has been key in these narratives so far is that um, the, is, is the highly particular epistemic register, a kind of spiritual reflex, um, by which a number of Bouchishia disciples genuinely perceive these phenomena. The final case of Selma below exemplifies a rare instance in which a disciple does openly reflect um, on the order's public politics. As will be seen, however, Selma reconciles her ambivalence from within the Islamic tradition, which accounts for potential confusion and indecision. So this is Selma speaking. My husband, uh, Selma says, was very active in the Bouchishia rally in favor of the king's reforms last June. But he's always been very political. He joined the Tariqa three years ago and had been telling me that I must join too. But I never understood why the Tariqa has to be so active. All the time on television, in the streets, I started to feel more and more anxious around the disciples, Fukura. I cannot explain this feeling, but when it was too much, I finally did Salat al-Istikhara, uh, which is um, an Islamic prayer for divine guidance. My sister, I cannot explain what happened, but I realized soon from the signs that the time had come, Sidi Hamza, the order's uh, late sheikh, had chosen me. This is all from God's grace. All those bad feelings caused me finally to ask God and he answered me. That's the end of the quote. Uh, Salma's narrative is insightful in that she articulated the order's political activities with a candidness that was relatively rare uh, among at least this group of disciples. Interestingly, however, she viewed her skepticism towards the order by viewing it in light of her own spiritual journey. Her very skepticism and unease evoked her quest uh, for guidance, which, facilitated by initial science, ultimately resulted in yakin, uh, conviction to wholeheartedly join the order. Moreover, Salma's performance of Salat al-Istikhara, uh, an instrument for obtaining divine guidance that is specified uh, with strict guidelines in the Islamic tradition, elicited, like Zuhra, a spiritual experience with the order's sheikh even before she was a disciple, thereby, in Salma's words, proving the spiritual authenticity of the Bouchishia sheikh and his tariqa. This final narrative highlights that skepticism towards the politics of the Bouchishia order and the criticism it has received because of these politics did not lead an individual uh, to immediately dismiss it as spiritually invalid, on the contrary, it led to a spiritual awakening that reified her disciplehood. Also key is that these experiences reaffirming the Bouchishia order's spiritual validity and value in new members' lives is far removed from the state-sponsored um, message of Sufism as culturally essential to Moroccan identity. The national discourses outlined in the first section of my presentation, which were at the core of, Bouchishia's, of the Bouchishia's promotion by the state, were not evoked neither by recruiters who focused on spiritual piety nor by participants in these recruitment programs. So this brief, brief venture into the spiritual and epistemological worlds of a handful of Bouchishia women wherein life is mediated not by the Moroccan state directly, 
but by divine signs and symbol, symbols or a program of self-cultivation, offers much food for thought concerning the relationship between politics and piety as it functions discursively in a single Sufi order. While it would be remiss to overlook that a large following of the Bhutshishiya, particularly those who constitute its urban elite branches, readily absorb the vocabulary of modernity, Moroccan Islam, and moderation, for many other disciples, like the recruited woman whom I interviewed, discourse on religious moderation and national cohesion hardly, if at all, constitutes a, discor uh, constitutes a defining element of Bhutshishiya piety. One solution is to simply acknowledge this order's duality. It is at once a self-conscious actor in the political field backed by the Moroccan state, yet also an authorized Sufi order bound by its own spiritual discourses and practices, which are often far removed from the political stakes. However, I would argue that these two discourses, political and spiritual, are not entirely separate in an absolute sense. As a Moroccan scholar explained to me, a major reason the Bouchishia order has been enormously successful and sustained in Moroccan politics is precisely because of its spiritual authority. That is to say that the order is not merely the pawn in the game of political players, but is itself endowed with tremendous influence as evidenced by its immense following, which ranges from the, the rural poor to the highest echelons of the political elite. So to reiterate, reiterate, it is not a simple case of Sufism being co-opted by the state, since Sufism also functions persuasively uh, in the religious and sociocultural fields where it gains authority, which is then continually sustained uh, through political rhetoric and state policies. Had Sufism no authority or influence of its own outside state endorsement, one would wonder the extent to which it would be repeatedly evoked uh, to represent Moroccan Islam. So just to conclude, this paper has argued that the recurring narrative of peaceful, moderate, and culturally relevant Islam surrounding a state-sponsored Sufi order, the Bouchishia in Morocco, uh, is only one perspective within an exceedingly complex, multifaceted discourse at every level. Analysis must be brought in to include these other views and discourses, which range substantially even amongst uh, uh, Bouchishia disciples themselves. The second half of my paper has tried to think through ways of approaching these differences methodologically. It should be clarified again that these experiences highlighted in section two do not seek to eclipse other approaches disciples have taken to process state uh, Sufi initiatives like the recruitment programs, uh, which does not always result in a positive affirmation um, or a spiritualization, um, so to speak, of the order's activities as it did with the select woman um, I mentioned in this paper. This ongoing project to study the order from the viewpoints of its diverse participant body reflects an effort to decenter the dominant discourses attendant to this order's politics, but to also contribute to broader scholarly uh, debates on the political dimensions of Sufism, um, especially those experiences that lay at the intertices of its political and spiritual spheres. So rather than creating fr uh, friction, these two facets of Bouchishia piety profoundly illustrate the order's inherent dynamicism and its multiplicity. Thanks. Thank you so much, Armand, for that um, offering from your ongoing research. It's terrific. And um, so please jot down your questions so you don't forget by the time we get to the end of this panel. Um, there's a lot. Uh, Armand has put a lot on the table for us. Um, Yusuf J. Carter um, is our next speaker. He's a college fellow in the departments of anthropology and African and African American studies here at Harvard. 
Last year, he was a visiting scholar in the Department of Anthropology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and non-residential research fellow at the International Institute of Islamic Thought. His research includes an examination of a West African Sufi order, Al-Tariqa Mustafawa, Mustafawi, excuse me, and its deployment as a technique of spiritual and bodily care amongst Muslims of varying African and European descent as they migrate to varying locations around the Atlantic. Yusuf, we're so glad to have you here. Welcome. Allahumma salli ala sayyidina Muhammad asabika lawamihin wa rahum min as-samawati sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi adada ar-rahmani wa adana nujum as-samaa so this translates as to O Allah send blessings upon our master Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the one who precedes all others the one whose brilliant lights radiate and fill the heavens May Allah bless him and his family and companions in the amount of every grain of sand and every star in the sky. <clears throat> um, the Salat al-Samawiyah is a prayer for peace and blessings upon the Prophet Muhammad that was bestowed upon Sheikh Mustafa Gay Haidara, uh, who was born in 1926, passed away in 1989. Uh, and, and this was a, a, a prayer that was given to Sheikh Mustafa Gay Haidara uh, through a actually seeing Prophet Muhammad. Um, and so it was within this moment of spiritual arrival that Sheikh Mustafa initiated the Tariq of Mustafa in 1966 in Chess, Senegal. Upon his passing, uh, his foremost protege, Sheikh uh, Harun Fai al-Fakir, took up the Mustafa mission by directing Muslims to the path of a heightened spiritual mastery in the United States and beyond. Um, with the help of Umay Shafai and other black American Muslims, uh, Sheikh Harun has carried out that mission for more than two decades by founding a community in Monk's Corner, South Carolina. And since then, he has facilitated the spiritual care and physical mobilities of his students as they have traveled back and forth to Senegal to study Quran, uh, to start families, and spread the message of Islam. And so um, I draw my reflection uh, today on the meanings of uh, West African Sufi pedagogy sort of transmitted between uh, and among Senegambian and African-American uh, uh, Mustafawi from multi-site ethnography, um, uh, multi-site ethno ethnographic research that I um, uh, completed in South Carolina and in Senegal. Um, and so uh, I'm also uh, sort of interested in how um, this way, this Salat al-Samawi is uh, sort of can be thought of as a dispensation or transmission of knowledge uh, that's shared uh, within the sort of West African uh, uh, Sufi uh, uh, 
tradition. And so I'm also interested in, um, as I'll sort of talk about in my paper, in the uh, boundaries of not just uh, what I'm referring to as an inheritance in terms of transmission of knowledge, but I'm also interested in the boundaries of pilgrimage um, in terms of thinking about the migrations that occur between South Carolina and Senegal. Um, and so, uh, one meaningful site of solidarity between and among the Mustafawi, it's the manner in which the sort of knowledge transmission that I gestured to earlier draws uh, both uh, Senegambian and African-American students squarely into the fold of the Tariqa. Uh, and so to use a term that's related to the question of lineage, it seems appropriate for me to describe what's passed down inside of these alliances, um, even filial and, and familial emergencies as inheritances, uh, specifically diasporic inheritances. Uh, so that the manner by which African-American Muslims sort of marry their uh, Senegalese counterparts to sort of maybe access a kind of lineage actuated by marriage and not solely devotional practice, um, that is sort of marrying into the family of the Sheikh, for example, or whereby students engage in certain kinds of uh, uh, sort of bodily practice that is uh, specific practices of the body that seek to recognize spiritual authority as such, um, might be framed in a way that uh, can adequately capture uh, the multiple access points into a West African Sufi tradition. And furthermore, I use the term inheritances in order to describe the manner in which uh, Mustafawi inherit forms of knowledge, both secretive and more public, uh, from the spiritual guide uh, that is their sheikh. And so, as explained to his students on a regular basis, uh, Sheikh uh, Harun notes that the knowledge he possesses is not attainable uh, through books. Uh, in fact, the knowledge he possesses uh, according to him, cannot be found or even gained easily. And it's through the arduous work of reflection and time spent in solitude or halwa uh, that his ancestors have collectively amassed a wealth of esoteric knowledge that has accumulated across many generations. Um, almost a millennia of uh, a formula for healing particular ailments, spe uh, special prayers for pre uh, protection and wealth, uh, numerological sciences and secrets derived from Quranic passages have all been passed down to Sheikh Fai. Uh, and so by extension to his students. Um, and so not only do they actually inherit practical knowledge for understanding religious matters and secretive knowledge or sir um, for attending to more sensitive needs, uh, but they also gain access to a network of similarly spiritually inclined compatriots. And so the path of transmission marks the manner in which knowledge uh, of the journey to God has been inherited from uh, Sheikh Fai's grandfather, Sheikh Sambagai, a, a prominent Tijani Sheikh, actually, in chess, uh, to the founder of the Tariqa, Sheikh Mustafa Gai Haidara, uh, to his eldest nephew, that is Sheikh Fai, Sheikh Harun Fai, and subsequently to his students, whether they be African-American, whether they be Senegalese, whether they be Gambian, whether they be Spanish, or even Indonesian. Uh, and we can talk about that maybe uh, uh, later. So anyway, to clarify, this chain of transmission uh, of esoteric knowledge must be understood as an iteration of a spiritual kinship, or in other words, a diasporic inheritance. Uh, because even though the passage from grandfather to grandson occurs biologically, the transmission from teacher to student occurs beyond the bounds of biological or religious-based kinship. And so the Zawiya of Monk's Corner in South Carolina, where I did part of my research, uh, provides both a landing and a point of departure for Mustafawi Muslims most of which are African-American converts in the, in the context of South Carolina, and have taken their, their uh, Sheikh Harun as their spiritual leader and guide. Um, as well, it should be noted that the Zawiya is located on land 
where African Americans uh, labored and were enslaved 160 years prior. Mind you, this is in South Carolina that I'm talking about. And so American-born Muslims in Otorica have been deeply influenced by the sort of West African Islamic pedagogical tradition, which places emphasis on the body, on the role of the body as a medium for religious and spiritual training. Um, and so the process of, uh, the processes of tarbiyah through which Muslims of African descent in Monk's Corner access via tasawwuf provides a strategy for addressing um, uh, personal and collective cultural trauma caused by the presence and histories of structural discrimination and racial oppression. And so participation in Sufi modes of training, uh, particularly a West African-derived configuration of Tisawaf, uh, has also culturally impacted African-American Mustafawi, as many view themselves as in the process of moving to Senegal, actually, um, or alternatively intent on bringing what they can of Senegal to South, uh, to South Carolina. And so during my research in South Carolina, I've witnessed um, uh, Sheikh Fai during uh, khutbahs or sermons, during uh, uh, other lectures uh, articulate the Salat al-Samawiyah um, as a prayer that was given to his Sheikh, Sheikh Mustafa, uh, for the purpose of dispensing that knowledge to Africans, uh, African Muslims in a diasporic context. Um, uh, and so in that way, we see an active uh, gesture toward a diasporic continuity that perhaps brings together or even collapses space and time, perhaps. And so um, now I move to thinking about pilgrimage. Um, and so the Monk's Corner Mosque, uh, which is named Masjid al-Muhajirun wal-Ansar, uh, which has its own interesting uh, uh, aspects to that sort of naming, is a site of pilgrimage for the Mustafawiyah members, particularly in the sort of East Coast region. Uh, uh, they all come to Monk's Corner to, uh, and think of this as a second home that they flock to during Muslim holidays. Uh, Eid al-Fitr, Eid al-Adha, uh, or other large events, uh, so Maulud, et cetera. Um, others, however, have permanently relocated to Monk's Corner uh, in order to live in proximity to Sheikh Harun and the Monk's Corner Muslim community. Um, most who have, who have relocated to Monk's Corner from other places, uh, such as Washington, D.C., or Philadelphia, um, uh, have done so for the sake of being, sitting with, and spending time with their Sheikh. And so uh, Sheikh Harun, has facilitated also the founding of an annual Sheikh Mustafa Day, uh, often held at the end of the year in Chess in Senegal, in which a handful of American and Spanish, actually, Muslims attend as honored guests. Um, and so during these trips uh, to Senegal, African-American Muslims in particular engage in both visitation to this tomb of uh, the late Sheikh Mustafa in Chess and sometimes other holy sites around the country, so Tuba, et cetera. Um, at the same time, they also, according to what I've seen, engage in, are encouraged to engage in heritage tourism uh, to the slave castle at Gori Island off the coast of Dakar, for example. And so these mobilities are essential uh, to understanding the culmination of a diasporic religious identity among the Mustafuya, uh, not just in West Africa, but also the United States and beyond. And so much work has been done to track and interpret the meanings of pilgrimage in terms uh, that has understood this particular kind of movement as diasporic, insofar as it's provided a vehicle for the construction and maintenance uh, of uh, what we could call homegoing discourses. Um, and so these processes of identity formation for African Americans in particular uh, have included heritage tourism to sites, as I said before, um, uh, in, in Ghana and Senegal. And so as Edward Bruner 
uh, argues in his foundational 1996 article, one of the major motives for African-American tourism to Africa um, involves visits to historic sites such as Almina Castle on the Ghanaian coast or uh, the Slav uh, in, in, in Gori Island, as I mentioned before. And this has been a preoccupation with what he argues uh, as root-seeking. Um, and so looking beyond tourism uh, as superficial and temporary forms of travel, Brunner contends uh, that this kind of diasporic mobility that results in pilgrimages to historic sites, uh, um, in the case that he's sort of speaking of, uh, Elmina Castle and, and Ghana must be read as meaning-making processes that allow diasporic communities to assemble roots backward to an imagined homeland. And so, um, therein he finds diasporans often must confront complex notions of belonging that collide with local understandings of selfhood, history, and ownership. Beyond this, Jemima Pierre argues um, that a narrow focus on heritage tourism risks misunderstanding what she says a broader terrain of national and uh, national and transnational, uh, transnational, excuse me, structure and politics, and particular relations of power between continental and diasporic Africans. Furthermore, the fact of race, blackness, and reconciling the history of slavery, Pierre asserts, should not solely fall upon the shoulders of Africans in the diaspora. Of course, scholars have also looked at how the act of travel, especially pilgrimage, uh, is often wrapped in meaning and has informed the development of Muslim diasporas too. And so although the primary act of pilgrimage um, that immediately comes to mind regarding Muslims is the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, which is observed by those who are able, um, I like for us to sort of think about a pilgrimage of a different order, whereby Sufi Muslims migrate to specific locations that are imbued with meaning, uh, and become sites around, with, uh, around which ethno-religious identities emerge. And so, like Professor Usman yesterday, uh, I'd like to highlight the role of Ziyara in the context of the Mustafuya Tariqa. Uh, so in my research, I've observed how African and African-American Muslims in the Mustafuya Tariqa participate in these pilgrimage networks uh, that are centered around two primary locations. Uh, as I said before, Monk's Corner in South Carolina and Chess in Senegal. And so these locations operate differently in the Tariqa. Uh, the main pull towards Monk's Corner for students from around the Atlantic is Sheikh Harun Fai himself. Um, and the main pull towards Monk's Corner for uh, students from the, uh, around the Atlantic, uh, or I should say visits to the community are motivated by, again, the desire for proximity to the Sheikh. Um, on the other hand, visits to Chess are motivated mainly by a different order of pilgrimage. Uh, in Islamic tradition, practitioners visit the shrines and tombs of revered saints uh, to access perceived blessings and pay homage to recognize spiritual authority in a given tradition. And so for African-American Muslims, uh, I've observed, however, that these sites are coupled with a desire to experience a kind of heritage tourism that works along the lines of supposed ancestry, uh, both genealogical and spiritual. And so the second side of pilgrimage uh, for the American Muslims whose central orientation is the Zawiyah of Monk's Corner is located squarely in the uh, city of Chess in Senegal. Uh, it's the birth home of Sheikh Fai uh, and the location of the Tariqa's beginnings. Uh, it's the location of Sheikh Mustafa Gahedara's house as well as his uh, gravesite, which is shared with Sheikh Fai's grandfather, Sheikh Sambagai, uh, and uh, Sheikh Harun's beloved uh, mother, Sukhna Khadijatu. Uh, over the years, uh, the Sheikh has taken many African-American students to visit his home city um, in order to meet his family, to pay homage to the memory of Sheikh Mustafa uh, through visiting his home and tomb and connect with the other side of the Mustafa Tariqa. 
Uh, and it's through this act of pilgrimage that the African-American students get to move beyond the space of imagining themselves as diasporic African Muslims into a physical embodiment of West African religious experience that plays a part uh, in the further cultivation of diasporic identities. And so to re reiterate, the travel to Senegal is not only motivated by the desire uh, to visit the tomb of Sheikh Mustafa, uh, for African-American Muslims in particular, a visit to Senegal also necessitates taking time out to visit tourist locations, uh, to the monument of African Renaissance, to the, the, the slave castle, and, uh, or the, the house of slaves in Gori Island. And so it's Sheikh Fai, actually, that highly encourages his African-American students who visit Senegal for the first time to visit these locations. Um, and he's certainly taken uh, students himself for visits to these uh, historic sites uh, in past years. And so back home, he's repeatedly suggested to his African-American students, I should say back home in South Carolina, because he's been living there uh, full time for the past 20 years or more. Um, he suggested to his African-American students to consider relocating to Senegal, actually, due to the ease of living in a predominantly Muslim country that would welcome the children of its stolen family members. In the midst of spiritual tourism to chess, heritage tourism is merged into the purpose of the larger trip in such a way that religious pilgrimage and discourses of African ancestry are combined. And so in this manner, both religious and cultural institutions work in tandem to cultivate black Muslim diasporic identities. And so in January of 2015, I accompanied Sheikh Khodun Fai and his contingent of African-American students to visit the city of chess in Senegal. After a roughly two-hour drive from Dakar, we stopped at a few houses um, of Sheikh Fai's relatives to rest and be fed by our hosts. These visits seem to be motivated by the kind of cultural politics of decorum and etiquette of a revered family member who has been away for much too long. Uh, our intent was to visit the gravesite of Sheikh Mustafa, um, the initiator of the Tariqa. Our other primary reason uh, for the trip was to meet with a local real estate broker, actually, uh, who agreed to show us land that had been purchased uh, on behalf of the Sheikh uh, by one of his prominent students, uh, Mikhail Abdullah, who was an African-American uh, expatriate and his son-in-law. Um, as we rode out to the site, it became apparent that this parcel of land was situated on the outskirts of Chess. The surrounding landscape was sparse, littered with small and large shrubs, and had yet to have electricity and sewer services routed out to the site. The only markers uh, that hinted at the prospect of present and future owners were several large white sticks that were flagged and numbered. These markers were placed in rows uh, that would suggest both the relative size of the plots and gave a general idea of where streets and alleyways would be placed. It was revealed to me during the drive toward the city that this land was to be sectioned off into smaller pieces, roughly 150 square meters in size, with the hope that his American students who wished to relocate to Senegal could build modest housing. Sheikh Harun Fai explained that he planned to name this community in chess Monk's Corner as the namesake of the community that he's worked tirelessly uh, for more than 20 years in South Carolina. Um, at the same time, the only trace of that this location was a site for future development were these sort of flagged white pegs that peaked from the ground roughly several, several meters apart. Uh, they were scattered in such a fashion that made it uh, apparent that each peg possibly marked property lines where a future neighborhood would be uh, built. And so it remains to be seen what would actually become of this land but the gesture with regard to naming of place and chest after an important location where Sheikh Fai has uh, spent significant time working to guide his American students is meaningful, in my opinion. And it, it brings these two locations 
together within a shared tradition and, bring, and brings these locations in, into dialogue. And so at the same time, it's not solely the movement of the body that produces or cultivates black Muslim diasporic identities. Many African-American students who reside in Monk's Corner who have never traveled to West Africa uh, and yet frequently speak of a strong desire to go. To be clear, it's not so much about actuality, but more about the cultivation of perception mediated by discourses of travel um, and desire shared between travelers and future travelers. So Mustafa, we who live in South Carolina, who have yet to make the trip across the Atlantic, witness these uh, pilgrimages back and forth, taking note of the manner in which Senegal registers as a space for travel homeward. These associations of home on the part of African-American Mustafawi in the context, uh, or I should say, in the context of the Sufi, uh, Sufi tradition at least, are placed upon both the imagined Senegambian religious landscape as well as the West African Muslim actors who uh, mediate positive notions of their homeland to their compatriots in the United States. So for example, Jamal Abdul Salam, uh, an African-American Muslim who has studied with and followed Sheikh Fai for about two decades or more, has never had the opportunity to actually travel to Senegal. The possibility of his international travel has been hampered in the past due to persistent economic difficulties or other personal challenges. However, his desire to travel and eventually relocate to Senegal or Gambia has remained constant due to his overwhelmingly positive association with West African deployment of Sufism. Um, to quote him, he says, I've met Muslims from all over the world, but the West African Muslim has a unique spirituality. I don't know if it's because they are black, or if it's because Sufism has permeated the Islamic culture, but I think it's a combination of both. Because when I'm with West African Muslims, even when I'm traveling and I'm in Philadelphia or New York or Maryland, I feel a sense of home. And I see the enactment of the Sunnah as a living, viable force. And I have not experienced that with any other people in the Islamic world, no other people. And I attribute that to the fact that tasawwuf is being implemented correctly, because you can feel the heart of the people, you feel that they are family." End quote. Jamal's words are telling of the impact and importance of uh, that personal relationships held between African-American and West Africans have on the configuring and maintenance of diasporic solidarities. Here, home is not necessarily identified as a geographic space for Jamal, but rather it is located within the people which he has come into contact with. Furthermore, it is not a coincidence that his, home, his sense of home is placed within a West African tradition of Tasawwuf. For Jamal, this imagined sense of home is not built from mobilities. Um, instead, his notions of homewardness orient from within and are determined by the interpersonal relationships he has founded with West African Mustafawi, with whom he has direct and sustained experience. Home, he tells us, is not in places or landscapes. This mobilization of identity does not involve tracing actual genealogies through time and space only. Rather, it's a process that encourages the diasporized disciple to locate him or herself in a tradition that spans continents and centuries by engaging the body into an appropriation of an already established spiritual network that affixes present students to past teachers through Sheikh Khadun In summary, it's important to note uh, that the West African Islamic tradition is the point of origin for the presence and practice of Islam in the United States in general, and should be considered as a point of departure for when thinking about the long historical development of African-descended Muslim communities around much of the Black Atlantic. The Mustafawiya Tariqa uh, provides an interesting example of a religious infrastructure that compels migration for Muslims located in the United States and in West Africa and beyond. 
while multiple zawiyas, specifically two major locations that I outlined before, uh, within that structure uh, simultaneously operate as points of reception and departure for local and international migrants. These uh, diasporic exchanges impact not just travelers, uh, but also initiates who, in spite of relative stasis, are impelled to orient themselves toward other locations in the Tariqa. An esoteric expertise mastered in Senegal and seasoned by an African-American inflection takes its shape through an articulation made possible by the meeting of two kinds of African religious production out of which new things are born. These collaborations in pilgrimage and knowledge transmission result in inventions and interventions that provide evidence for the presence of a black Atlantic spiritual network, whereby African-American Muslims adopt the spiritual pedagogy of a specific West African Islamic tradition and impacts how the Mustafawiya network responds to its broader Atlantic community. Thank you very much. It's a wonderful companion piece to Professor Khan's lecture of yesterday. Um, you've really shown us how meanings get layered into these journeys and illuminated a new spiritual network for us. So thank you very much. Our next speaker is Ariella Marcassels. Um, she is an assistant professor of religious studies and distinguished emerging scholar at Elon University. Her research focuses on Sufi intellectual history and the history of Muslim societies in West Africa and the relationship between the categories of religion, magic, and science. She graduated with a PhD in religious studies and Islamic studies from Stanford University in 2015 with a dissertation that examined the realm of the unseen in the work of 18th century Sufi writers from the Southern Sahara Desert. This project was based on unpublished manuscript texts that circulated between northern and sub-Saharan Africa, and she accordingly spent much time in manuscript libraries in Mali, Morocco, and France. Um, we're so glad to have you share your research with us today. Ariella. Thank you so much. So hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I, want to, um, I actually want to thank Jason for starting us off with the uh, Salat al-Samawiya, because I'm going to now give a presentation that's very much about um, Salawat and uh, Du'at and these other kinds of devotional prayers. I think I might also be um, one of the, the person on this panel. I think I'm in a panel mostly with um, um, anthropologists and ethnographers, so I think yes, I'm going to bring... Oh, I'm sorry, is this, is this on? It's it on. is on, yeah, but I'm not facing it. I'm facing the wrong way. Okay. So I seem to be the historical voice on this panel of um, ethnographers, um, and it's, I hope that I can bring some of these concerns into um, a more historical case study as well. So uh, recently, scholars of Saharan history and culture have argued that earlier approaches to the Sahara treated the desert as either an obstacle to be surmounted or a bridge connecting the spaces on either side, rather than a dynamic space in which contemporary and historical people lived, worked, and moved. These scholars have called for a new approach that examines the Sahara as a place in its own right, that works from the inside out, and that seeks out the historically deep and enduringly vigorous aspects of life in the region, which arguably not only connect, but create the various complementary and interdependent spaces of Northwest Africa. Um, that's from Judith Scheel, whose work has been um, really wonderful. This paper contributes to this project of advancing our understanding of desert peoples in historical contexts by addressing the issue of changing Muslim understandings of devotional practice. So this topic has been of perennial concern to, um, to anthropologists and ethnographers, as we've seen. 
but has received comparatively very little treatment by historians. So in what follows, I will use the intersection of these concerns, that is um, the creation of a uniquely Saharan space and um, historical and social cultural practices with, and the intersection between that and ri um, ritual practice. Through an examination of the devotional aids attributed to one Saharan Muslim scholar from the late 18th and early 19th century, Sidi al-Muqtar al-Kunti. As I will demonstrate, Sidi al-Muqtar drew on intellectual and devotional traditions salient across Western Africa, from Morocco to Nigeria, but adapted and reshaped these traditions in response to his own Saharan context. So, oh, I can, I can lean over from here, thank you. Appreciate it. So this is a map, I drew this out. Um, it's fairly rough, but it's, um, these are places that emerge as um, repeated points in the hagiographies of Sidi al-Muqtar al-Kunti, and they map out the kind of imagined space of the Kunta realm at the turn of the 19th century. So this paper that I'm presenting today is actually, it's also a part of a larger manuscript project focused on the Sufi scholarship of Sidi al-Muqtar and his son and successor, Sidi Muhammad. Scholarship on the Kunta family indicates that this extended kinship network rose to prominence under the leadership of Sidi al-Muqtar in the late 18th century. Internal, internal family chronicles composed by his son, Sidi Muhammad, depict a young Sidi al-Muqtar uniting his own branch of the Kunta in the Azawad with those from the Mauritania Hod and Adrar, establishing his authority over the tomb of his ancestor, Ahmed al-Bakai al-Kunti, in, in the important trading town of Walata, and then developing a regional trading network as well as control over crucial resources, particularly salt. These chronicles establish a physical genealogy for Sidi al-Muqtar that ties him mythologically to Uqba ibn al-Nafi, the legendary Muslim conqueror of the region, and thus to the Prophet's tribe of Quraysh. Meanwhile, the same chronicles pre present a parallel spiritual genealogy that establishes Sidi al-Muqtar as a Sufi friend of God, a Wali, with a lineage reaching back through Muhammad to Jibril and then to God. Scholarship devoted to Sidi al-Muqtar and Sidi Muhammad has demonstrated that these scholars first portrayed and understood their social authority in terms of their status as Sufi friends of God, and second, articulated and defended that status through the production and dissemination of a vast body of Arabic manuscript texts. Scholars who have examined the Kunta writings have also noted a focus within these texts on both the realm of the unseen, alam al-Rayb, and practices relating to that realm, which the Kunta scholars refer to as either the sciences of the unseen, alum al-Rayb, or the sciences of the secrets, alum al-Asrar. So in chapter two of the larger project, I describe the realm of the unseen as it emerges from the Kunta's longer cosmological and metaphysical treatises. These texts portray the realm of the unseen as a vast invisible world that simultaneously surrounds and interpenetrates the tangible world of the senses, encompassing God, the heavenly realms, angels, spirit beings, jinn, and devils, as well as the invisible components of the human body, such as the intellect, heart, spirit, and self. These treatises also include complex and sophisticated discussions of the Sufi path as a means of rising up through different layers of the invisible realm towards God. At different stages of this ascent, various components of both the believer and the cosmos are annihilated and then um, reconstituted ultimately through the believing body of the, of the Sufi student. 
In addition to discussing the realm of the unseen, various Kunta treatises also lay out specific means and methods for interacting with this realm. Sidi al-Muqtar and Sidi Muhammad focus particularly on what they refer to as the sciences of the unseen, which include creating amulets, reciting powerful litanies, and manipulating the letters of the alphabet and the names of God. I've already had wonderful discussions um, about different people here about these various practices. Um, so as I demonstrate in chapter three of the larger project, the Kunta acknowledged that other unnamed Muslim scholars might consider these practices as acts of sorcery, as sihr, but they argue forcibly that the sciences of the unseen are not sihr, but constitute legitimate de Muslim devotional practices, ibadat, and compare them explicitly to supplicatory prayer, dua. So in what follows, I will first situate the supplicatory prayer texts attributed to Sidi al-Muqtar in relation to the Kunta scholar's larger discursive works. Set against the context of Sidi al-Muqtar and Sidi Muhammad's discussions of cosmology, metaphysics, and sacred history, these prayer texts appear as a series of encoded references intended for didactic expansion. Secondly, I will compare these two texts to the supplications in the Fawad and Noraniya in order to situate supplicatory prayer within the Kunta's larger understanding of efficacious religious practice. I'm actually only going to give a brief summary of my argument of this section for the purposes of time. Within this ideology of practice, non-discursive devotional texts emerge as the link connecting the bodies of believing Muslims to the structure of the cosmos, allowing them to alter the material conditions surrounding them. Finally, I will turn to other supplicatory texts circulating in the region at the time. Read against a backdrop of proliferating textual devotional aids, the Kunta's contribu contributions to this genre suggest an attempt to regulate the religious practice of Muslims in the region, to bring these practices under the control and the authority of the Kuntish scholars. In contrast to my first reading, which sees the Kunta's supplicatory prayers as a manifestation of an ideology of practice, this second reading understands the Kunta's larger intellectual framework as a secondary effect, one that justifies their participation in local Muslim religious practices. Ultimately, I'm arguing here that both of these readings are equally correct and equally necessary. Practice shapes ideology even as ideology shapes practice. Moreover, whether read in one direction or the other, these texts reveal that both the Kunta specifically and Saharan Muslims in general understood written Arabic texts as a fundamental component of efficacious religious practice during this period. For 18th century Saharan Muslims, prayer was based in and driven by textuality. Part one, encoded cosmologies. <coughs> the Hizb Sidi al-Muqtar is one of several two to three folio works titled Hizb and attributed to the Kunta, to Sidi al-Muqtar in particular. It begins, O God, strike me with the veil of light and veil from me the canopy of fire and make the greatest name a garment of mine and the largest secret hair of mine and the talismanic altar wine of mine, and the deeply dark clouds a wall of mine, and the perfected radiance light of mine, and the subduing jabarut, and the overcoming nasut, and the gathering forms a dwelling of mine. Um, if you had access to the 
the, the papers, the pre-circulated papers, I actually included an appendix with all the translations that I use here. And these are actually abbreviated in the presentation, so if you want the longer ones, I, I, I would direct you there. I'm also happy to send them if you don't have access and you reach out to me. I saw someone taking a camera photo. <laughs> the opening of the prayer um, evokes a melange of allusions to cosmological and metaphysical principles that the Kunta expand on in other texts. I can't really do it justice here, but these readings that I'm doing of these works are not, they're not kind of out of the blue. I'm reading them intertextually against a kind of larger treatises in this particular reading. The beginning lines of this section first posit and then invert tropes of veiling and illumination as the narrator asks for a removal of the veil standing between the supplicant and the light of God, while requesting a continued veiling from light in its negative aspect, the fires of hell. From this metaphysical position between divine light and hellfire, the prayer moves on to request that God add divine or cosmological aspects to the body of the supplicant. Some of these, such as the greatest name in secret and the three realms of existence, Ejabarut and Malakut and Amnasut in some texts and Mulk, directly recall elements from other Kunta texts. And again, I can't do it justice here. And I'm happy to talk about how the Kunta understand the different realms and anything in the Q&A or in later discussions. So this work continues. Oh God, make me among those whom you chose before creating. You singled them out with your mercy after upon them gazing. And you made the striking of the droplets of your light the cause that led them by the rains to strengthening. Without strengthening, neither Iblis nor Balaam could do anything. They were free from the singling out of mercy and a pre-existent lot, and so their deeds turned upon them, corrupted. The abundance of their sciences only increased them in defects. O most merciful of the merciful, O possessor of majesty and nobility, amen. Amen. The section of the text, this section of the text connects the metaphysical references of the first section to sacred history. The narrator here asks God to include the speaker among those chosen for a predetermined but unspecified fate. Other texts by Sidi al-Muqtar and Sidi Muhammad suggest this could refer either to the guarantee of entrance into paradise or of reaching the goal of annihilation of the self in knowledge of the divine, fanat. In works composed by both the Kunta scholars and other Sufi authors, this direct experience of God represents a return to the day before creation when God called forth the future spirits of humankind and asked them to witness him directly. Um, Immediately following the lines in the Hezb that request this predetermined blessing from God, Sidi al-Muqtar cites the names of two figures that reappear in Kunta's sacred histories. The figure of Iblis, or Satan, the angel who refused God's commands to bow down before Adam and was cast from heaven as a result, appears only as a negative character in the Kunta writings. There's a Sufi poetic tradition that sees Iblis as a, um, a poetic hero and treats him as positively as the, the most perfect lover of God, but I've not seen that trope in Kunta text. He, repeats, um, he appears only as a negative figure. So in, the, in his hagiography of his father, the Torah of Talaid, Sidi Muhammad presents the story of Iblis as an angel who spent thousands of years in continuous worship of God, but grew arrogant as a result. This arrogance resulted in his refusal of God's order to bow before Adam, a single disobedience that erased countless years of devotion and serves as a cautionary tale for the dangers of complacence and the consequences of even one lapse. 
Iblis also appears an important role in a short, untitled text attributed to Sidi al-Mukhtar and labeled as Khalwa in manuscript catalogs. This work represents Satan as an impersonator who brings false visions to friends of God and specifically tries to trick um, friends of God into believing that they have seen God um, when in fact it is, um, it is the devil, it is Satan. This same text also provides another reference to Balaam, whom it describes as a corrupt practitioner of the sciences of the unseen. So according to Athalabi and At-Tabari, these um, earlier Muslim chronicler, chroniclers, Balaam ibn Ba'ara was a Canaanite who, persuade, who was persuaded by the giants to use the greatest name of God to curse the Israelites. However, when he launched this curse, he ended up cursing the giants instead, and God caused his tongue to fall from his mouth. So the Kunta don't quote this exact story about Balaam, but the context is similar. So in the Kunta context, the references suggest that both Iblis and Balaam possessed the sciences of the secrets, but that their attempts to employ that knowledge only turned against them. Moreover, the Hezb adds an additional layer of interpretation, linking this failure not to the crime of arrogance in these figures' lifetimes, but rather to a withdrawal of God's mercy in the pre-eternity before creation. So they were set up to fail from the start. Each reference in the Hizb city al Mukhtar contains the potential for this type of discursive elaboration. I could do this all day. <laughs> Evoking an array of intertexts both within and outside of the Kunta corpus. The lines, oh God, make the greatest name a rapper of mine, could easily lead to a long conversation about the greatest name of God. Even an apparently simple request, such as inhabit our hearts with your love, could lead to a long discourse about the nature and components of the human heart, not to mention the nature and role of God's love for his believers. Really, I could, I could launch into such a discourse right now, but I'm restraining myself. And if the Hizb contains this potential for discursive elaboration in every line, the Nafat Atib, the Nafat Atib evokes an even denser array of topics from sacred history and geography, personal ethics, anthropology, cosmology, and metaphysics. So unlike the category of single short prayers, alternatively known as Hezb, Dhikr, uh, Word, or Dua, Sidi al-Muqtar's Nafhat al-Tib, Fi Salat al-Nabi al-Habib, partakes in a genre of literature known as Tasliya, or prayers to the prophet. These supplications ask God to pray for Muhammad and involve the repetition of some version of the Tasliya, the phrase, prayer and peace be upon the prophet Muhammad and his family and his companions. While divided into four quarters, the Nafat al-Tib um, little, contains little thematic organization. Each supplication contains its own host of references and allusions. Indeed, the Nafhat contains so many themes and references that it inspired its own commentary by Sidi Muhammad, which in one witness runs to almost 400 manuscript pages. In the following discussion, I address a selection of excerpts that illustrate the Nafhat's treatment of just one theme, Muhammad's role in human history. So the second quarter of the Nafat Atib opens with a series of supplications referring to Muhammad not by name but by genealogy. I've got them here. O oh God, pray for and bring peace to the son of Ibrahim who most resembles Ibrahim, honored with adornments and intimacies. O oh God, pray for and bring peace to the one sent from the line of Ismail, ennobled by revelation and sending down. O oh God, pray for and bring peace to the one prophesied from an established seed. 
O God, pray for and bring peace to the one chosen from uh, Didi Adnan, the one who was brought the seven oft-repeated verses and the criterion. O God, pray for and bring peace to the elected from a destined race. O God, pray for and bring peace to the best of the Nizar, the Nizar, who the one who leads to calling upon the truth of the emigrants and helpers. So the references in these supplications trace Muhammad's lineage in a line of descent from Ibrahim through his son Ismail, and then into the mythologized race of the Arabs, represented here by Adnan, the legendary ancestor of the northern Arab tribes, and his grandson, Nizar. More than a simple pedigree, the Nafhat Tib grants the descent of this line through history a teleological force, guided by destiny through the established seed of Ibrahim and Ismail and the destined race of the Arabs toward the prophesied birth of Muhammad. Even as the Nafhat Tib collapses humanity before Muhammad into a single descending lineage, it slowly expands the pool included in Muhammad's community of believers in his Ummah mentioning at various points all the peoples reached by his mission. The passage above includes a reference to the emigrants, al-Muhajirin, who accompanied Muhammad on his flight from Mecca, and the helpers, al-Ansar, who welcomed him in Medina. Elsewhere, the text refers to Muhammad as the master of Qatan and Adnan, by whose call all the types of people and jinn were led. So this begins by including um, all the Arabs in his um, prophetic mission, metonymically represented here by the legendary ancestors of both the northern and southern uh, Arabian tribes, and ultimately of not only all people, but all jinn as well. At other points, supplications portray the Slavs and the Turks as responding to his call, his dawah, and people with red and black skin as joining his community of believers, his ummah. Finally, these references spill out from the human into the non-human realm. So here, Muhammad's mission was directed towards all humans and all jinn, and other verses portray angels and all animals and inanimate objects as recognizing his prophethood. In contrast to the passages of, the, of this same work that portray Muhammad as the end goal of human history that preceded him, these passages depict the human and non-human populations of the world joining his community in ever-expanding and more encompassing categories. These selections do not exhaust the references to Muhammad's life and personal history. Other passages treat his night journey, refer to the purification of his heart as a child and to his death. Nor does this text limit its understanding of Muhammad's roles to the human or historical, and many supplications deal with his cosmological and cosmogonical significance, as well as his status as an exemplar of ethical human behavior. But looking beyond the particular personage of Muhammad, many supplications evoke the characteristics or names of God, and at least one passage enumerates the many components of the world in its entirety. O oh God, pray for him the number of revolutions of the spheres. Pray for him the number of praises of the kings. Pray for him the number of lights and of darknesses. Pray for him the reach of perception and pray for him the number of souls and of progeny. Pray for him the number of mountaintops and pray for him the number of the dead and the sleeping. Pray for him the number of drops in the swelling seas. Pray for him the number of exquisite flowers and pray for him the number of lofty waterfalls. Pray for him the number of sand grains and stones and pray for him the numbers that can be neither reckoned nor fathomed. Pray for him the number of raindrops in the clouds. Pray for him the number of the seen and the unseen. Taken together, the supplications of this relatively short work, written in memorizable, rhyming prose, allude to all the major elements of the Kunta's understanding of the entire world. 
its creation and inhabitants, human history and communities, the nature of God and the prophet, the relationship between God and his believers, and the end of the world. The text discusses none of these references fully, but through its list of illusions provides a platform for infinite intellectual elaboration, a condensed encoding of an entire world view. So in, um, in the next part of this, of the overall paper, which I am just going to pass over, I compare these works to a text by Sidi Muhammad, which has supplicatory prayers actually attached in the same text to a cosmological and theoretical discussion of how they work, which allows us to piece together how the Kunta actually understood devotional practice and understood connecting particularly to the greatest name of God and to the names of God as, a, as an embodied physical practice. Um, and in that particular text, it's really fascinating that Sidi Muhammad actually provides the greatest name of God. Um, it's a text called the Fawa'id Nuraniya wa Fara'id Suriya Rahmaniya. And this is the greatest name of God, in case anyone was wondering. Um, and he provides um, tables and charts associated with it and the litanies that you recite in order to make use of it. So if anyone was wondering, that's the one. But I'm going to move on to... Um, doo -doo -doo. Technologies of devotion. So in the last section, I showed how situating devotional aids like the Hizb City al-Muqtar within the Kunta corpus illuminates the role that these short devotional works play within a larger Kunta theory of practice. However, by granting discursive texts the authority to explain the role of devotional works, this process necessarily privileged the intellectual content of these texts over their social context and thus also the scholars who composed these works over the practitioners who might have performed them. So I think of the reading that I just performed for you as a reading down. It starts with larger philosophical and metaphysical discourses, and then I demonstrated how these concepts were re-encoded in the format of supplicatory prayers. However, in this section, I'd like to turn to the other half of this story by prioritizing the social context of devotional practice in the Southern Sahara at the turn of the 19th century. So I'll begin with examining other popular works of devotion that were proliferating in the, circulating in the region at the time. And then I want to work upwards and to argue that the Kunta produced their own works in response to this um, already changing devotional context on the ground. So I'm mostly going to do this for the purposes of the presentation in reference to the Dalal al-Khairat of al-Jazuli. So Sidi Muhammad's hagiography of his parents describes his mother, Lala Aisha, as a friend of God in her own right, whose piety manifests as a near continuous outpouring of devotional words drawn from recitation of the Quran, vicars, and various supplicatory prayers. And although most of the prayers recited by Lala Aisha and other Kunta family members remain unnamed in the sources, Sidi Muhammad does refer explicitly to one text, the Dalal al-Khairat wa Shawarak al-Anwar fi dhikr al-Salat al-Nabi al-Muqtar, the guides to goodness and rays of lights in remembering prayer for the chosen prophet. This compendium of prayers for the prophet is attributed to the 15th century Moroccan Sufi, Abdul, um, Abu Abdullah Muhammad al-Jazuli, and it achieved widespread influence across the world, from West Africa to India to Indonesia, and played a pivotal role in establishing the genre characteristics for prayers for the prophet. 
Like the Nahat Atib, the main text consists of a list of requests for God to pray for the Prophet Muhammad, with each request beginning with the phrase, O God, and including some version of the Tesliyah. While most compendium of prayers to the Prophet composed after the Dalal Khairat share these genre conventions, El Jazuli's compendium is one of the few definitively known to have circulated in pre-colonial West Africa. The presence of this work in the region and the fact that Sidi Muhammad refers to it by name suggests that this work served as the model for Sidi Muhammad's Nafatatib. So in addition to sharing formal genre conventions, the content and even the wording of the two bear striking similarities. So I like this one in particular, um, where um, al-Jazuli uses prayers for the prophet as an opportunity to enumerate all the facets and components of the entire world. O oh God, pray for our master Muhammad, to the number of your creations, to the extent of your pleasure, in the decoration of your throne and in the ink of your words, and as often as your creations have remembered you in the past, and as often as they will remember you throughout the rest of time. And pray for him in every year, in every month, in every week, in every day, in every night, in every hour, in every sniff, in every breath, in every blink, and in every glance, forever and ever, for the duration of the world and the duration of the next world, and for longer than this, with the beginning which never ends and an end which never finishes. So despite um, the influence of this work on both the greater region and the Kunta's own writings, the Nefet Atib does exhibit significant departures from the Dalal Khairat. And importantly, despite the high level of mimesis between these works, Sidi al-Muqtar never reproduces verbatim any of the prayers from the Dalal Khairat. And that's actually surprising, because there are certain prayers which are known and are popular as um, genre conventions, which are usually reproduced in these. Though these include prayers such as the Ibrahimic prayer, as Salat al-Ibrahima, O oh God, pray for our master Muhammad and the family of our master Muhammad, just as you prayed for our master Ibrahim and the family of our master Ibrahim, for you are the praised, the good. This um, is repeated throughout the Dalal Khairat, and it does not appear even once in the Nefet Atib, and that's unusual. There are other prayers like the Salat al-Sura, the minor prayer attributed to Abdul Qadr al-Jilani. Um, al-Jilani is a majorly important figure for the Kunta, and the fact that they do not reproduce any of the Salawat that are attributed to him in their own Salawat is notable. So, as a result, I'm arguing that while Sidi al-Muqtar drew on the familiarity of the form of the Dalal Khairat among Saharan Muslims, he chose to set the content of the Nafet Atib decisively apart from previous compendiums of prayers to the Prophet. So this, um, I just did a kind of comparative reading between the Dalal Khairat and the Nafet Atib. I could, but I won't, do the same thing um, between the Hizb Sidi al-Muqtar and the Hizb al-Bahar of um, al-Shadili. And it's again very striking, the degree of mimesis between the two works, which never, um, which never results in direct quotation or copying. So in addition to these two, the Dalal Khairat and the Hizb al-Bahar, evidence suggests that other devotional texts were circulating in the Southern Sahara and Sahil at the turn of the 19th century. Zachary Wright, thank you so much has recently demonstrated that Ahmed Tijani was involved in collecting and transmitting powerful supplicatory prayers in North Africa during his lifetime. 
um, Tijani was a contemporary of Sidi al-Muqtar, and he had initiated several students uh, from West Africa by the turn of the 19th century who had returned to what is now Mauritania within Sidi al-Muqtar's own lifetime. So it is very possible that Tijani prayers were circulating in the desert during this period. Meanwhile, to the southeast of the Azawad, a text produced by one of the leaders of the Sokoto movement lists some of the major works that Uthman Donfodio and his brother studied as part of their Islamic education. This list mentions the Ishrinat of al-Fazazi and um, the Burda of al-Busiri and these other works. And the Burda appears in all major manuscript collections from the region. There's also evidence that Saharans had begun to compose their own devotional works during the early 18th century. Manuscript catalogs indicate that El Yadali and his student El Daimani, who died in the mid-18th century, just before the rise of Sidi al-Muqtar, also composed poetry in praise of the prophet. So collectively, this evidence suggests that devotional texts of various genres were proliferating in the region in the late 18th century, and that Southern Saharan Muslims were increasingly interested in written texts as devotional aids. So against this background, it appears that the Kunta did not simply um, provide devotional aids, but they also argued that supplication of God was closely linked to other devotional practices, such as spiritual retreat, formal prayer, the crafting of amulets, and the use of magical squares. So all of this makes it seem as if the cosmological and metaphysical theories attached to um, their larger corpus and explained in greater lengths in other treatises, appear less like theological precursors and more like post facto productions that are produced in order to explain and justify the Kunta's involvement with pre-existing local religious practices. In conclusion, I got there. So elsewhere in their works, the Kunta sheikhs display an awareness that Muslims might use texts on religious practice on their own without the guidance of their Sufi leaders. These texts suggest that the Kunta were concerned about this possibility and that they responded to that concern by attempting to shape the devotional religious landscape of the Southern Sahara. The supplicatory prayers they produced engaged this landscape on two levels. On the one hand, they offered new texts written in familiar genres but attached to the name and authority of Sidi al-Muqtar. Um, other works then suggest that when used in the appropriate ritual context and under um, the supervision of Sufi sheikhs, these prayers could alter the material conditions surrounding the supplicant. Finally, um, and they also connect them to a larger Sufi theoretical framework. However, the relationship between these layers of text can be flipped. Sidi al-Muqtar and Sidi Muhammad were indisputably highly educated Muslim scholars and fully engaged and conversant with cosmological and metaphysical discussions. The theories of efficacious religious practice that emerge from their longer works demonstrate not only their fluency but also their investment in these concepts. Their short supplicatory prayers fit neatly into the framework of their theories, encoding their religious worldviews and pointing to the deep relationship between their understanding of God and the cosmos and of practice. Religious practice for the Kunta scholars was the performance of cosmology, metaphysics, and sacred history, a reenactment of the relationship between supplicating believers, the world around them, and God. And these two readings are not contradictory. Sidi al-Muqtar and Sidi Muhammad were products and producers of both an intellectual heritage and a social landscape. They applied the textual traditions they studied to their local context, and they sought to shape their context in accord with their scholarship. 
And ultimately, the ability of the Kunta scholars to connect these two kinds of texts demonstrates the degree to which practice for 18th century Southern Saharan Muslims was based on and driven by Arabic texts. The ideally pious Muslim is represented in the Kunta text by the image of Lala Aisha reciting the Quran, the Dalal al-Khairat, and other supplicatory prayers. That is, reading texts. In the Torah al-Talaid, the image of Lala Aisha of Lela Aisha's devotions is paradigmatic, but also threatening. Behind her stands the specter of other Muslims performing similar devotions, but not connected by bonds of marriage and family to Sidi al-Muqtar. The Kunta's devotional aids and didactic works on religious practice address these spectral believers and attempt to bring their practice in line with the Kunta's doctrines and under the sphere of their teaching, to make them, in other words, members of their community. Thank you very much, Ariella, for those um, rich, close readings of those magnificent prayers. Um, our last speaker is Christine Dong. She is an assistant professor of music at NYU, and she explores the role of musical practice in expressing religious and political forms of belonging and mediating the distance between the two. She studies the relationship between religion and politics in the music of Africa, in Islam and Christianity in the Global South, and in the co contemporary soundscapes of urban life. Her current book project, Songs of Spiritual Difference, Muslim and Christian Voices in Senegalese Public Space, is based on two years of ethnographic research with multiple religious communities and will represent the first academic monograph on sacred music in Senegal. It examines the ways in which musical practice is used to produce experiences of spiritual belonging and difference, and probes the consequences that such musical production of belong, excuse me, probes the consequences that such musical production of belonging and difference bears on the wider publics in which these religious communities are located. Um, so back to ethnography. Thank you, um, Christina. Thank you, Cynthia. Good morning. Um, the title printed on the program and the abstract accompanying it uh, was penned many, many moons ago and has not aged well. Therefore, with grand apologies, the paper I am now giving is called Voicing Difference in the Senegalese, Senegalese Tijaniya. Parts of it are adapted from work I recently published in Ethnomusicology Forum. Senegalese cities pulsate with contesting sounds of belief. In Senegal, where most follow mystical paths of Islam, Musical piety is common in, all, in public spaces at all hours of day and of night, amplified to maximum volumes. This morning, I wish to listen with you to one set of voices reverberating across Senegalese urban soundscapes, those belonging to the Tijaniya, which is the country's largest Sufi order, claiming the allegiance of nearly half of Senegalese Muslims. In Senegal, Tijanis have developed vocal traditions which are local, novel, and indigenous. However, their core liturgies, those liturgies commanded as obligatory rites, were born in the Maghreb and are shared by all Tijani communities. And it is on these liturgies which I will focus. When voice allowed, oops, sorry. When voice allowed, these liturgies declare religious belonging to the Tijaniya. At the same time, the voicing of liturgy reveals the ways Senegalese Tijanis diverge and deviate from each other. Voice exposes the fragmentation of the Sufi order as much as it manifests spiritual unity. 
This audible fragmentation in vocal practice reflects the division within the Senegalese Tijaniya, which splinters across several geographic centers, each housing different lines of religious authority. Each of these branches approaches the vocalization of identical liturgies in distinct ways, infusing them with the echoes of divergent cultural, historical, and political imaginaries. Their deliberate efforts to amplify vocal differences were explained in a statement with a, which a Tijani disciple made to me. Chanter, c'est une façon de se différencier. Singing is a way of differentiating yourself, of separating yourself. This paper will contemplate the ways in which singing becomes a mode of difference making in the two largest Tijani branches in Senegal, that of Maliksi in Tiwawon and of Ibrahim Yas in Medina Bay. The history of the Tijaniya, many in the audience already know well, of Sheikh Ahmed Tijani's encounter with the Prophet in the Algerian desert, of the Prophet's injunction that at, at Tijani established a new Sufi order, of the rapid spread of the Tijaniya across the Maghreb and into West Africa. Our story advances now then to the 20th century, where a new generation of leaders emerge who created separate branches across the Senegambia. In 1902, El Haj Maliksi established his branch, the Tijaniya Malikia in Tiwawon, a growing town located between the northern capitals of Dakar and San Luis. Under Maliksi's leadership, Tiwawon became a center of Islamic scholarship, attracting many followers, especially among the region's Wolof ethnic majority, to Islam and Sufism. Today, the Malikia is the largest Tijani branch in Senegal. In the 1930s, Ibrahim Yas assumed leadership of a second major branch in Medina Bay in Kaolak, in a southern town near the Gambian border. This branch is known as the Tijaniya Ibrahimiya, or the Faida, meaning the community of the divine flood. The Faida um, quickly developed a strongly transnational, multi-ethnic character, flourishing across West Africa, where it would eventually become the most widespread Muslim movement. And for those wanting to know more, um, several of the scholars here today are experts and have written wonderful books about um, um, the Tijaniya Ibrahimiya. At Nyasa's death in 1975, his followers were estimated to number in the tens of millions. Today, the, the Nyasa, um, the Tijaniya Ibrahimiya, is the largest Tijani branch worldwide. Aside from the Maliki and the Faida, other branches have developed in rural and urban areas, differing in ethnic and cultural membership, approaches to political powers, and in interpretations of Islamic doctrine. However, they all share common faith in the spiritual authority of Sheikh Ahmed Tijani and in the saving grace of the practices he enjoined. Key among Tijani practices is the use of the voice to facilitate dhikr Allah, the remembrance of God. All Tijani branches, regardless of religious lineage or cultural demographics, share a tradition of voicing distinct prayers and liturgies, a tradition they believe was transmitted directly to Tijani by the Prophet himself. Within the Tijaniya, three rituals of dhikr, the act of remembering God, are prescribed. The weird al-lazim, the waziva, and the hadra. All three rely on the voice for fulfillment. The most important of these is the lazim or the Tijani weird, a mandatory formula for prayers, which disciples are required to recite alone, twice daily, in a low voice. Yet though the disciple is alone, he should recite the lazim in a way so he can hear himself, so that the voice carries the words through his own ear inward to his consciousness. Unlike the lazim, the wazifa and the hadra are not mandatory rites. 
However, they were practiced by Sheikh Atijani himself and are commanded to those faithful who crave spiritual elevation. And in both Wazifa and Hadra, disciples must strive to recite with others, lifting their voices aloud in communal melody so that the resulting sonorities might help them to perceive, in the words of Abdulaziz Kebe, la subtilité de Dieu, the subtleness, the fineness of God. The first tones of the wazifa are heard in the hour before dawn, during the largest stretch of relative quiet within noisy Senegalese cities. From within certain mosques, voice of man chan men chanting wazifa seep into still and darkened streets. Their voices presage the coming of the new day, before the Muslim call to prayer is heard at dawn, before the return of traffic, crowds, and commotion as morning softly breaks. I have never stepped inside a mosque while men earnestly recite the wazifa before dawn, but from where I lived in Dakar in 2001 and 2, I could hear their faint twilight sounds from the Dijani Mosque nearby on those occasions when the sounds were amplified by speakers and turned up high. I was able to attend recitations of the wazifa immediately following sunset when young Tijanis often chant outside in any space they can claim. Whether inside or outside, during the twilight of dawn or dusk, the wazifa consists of four pillars, the istighfar, the plea for forgiveness, the salat al the prayer of the opener, la ilaha illallah, the testimony of the unity of God, and the joharat al-kamel, the pearl of perfection, a special eulogy to the prophet. Around an immaculate white cloth laid on the bare ground, these litanies are chanted, with men lifting their voices in unison, in a process that requires over 30 minutes. In most normal, traditional circumstances, women do not sit around the white cloth, nor are they permitted to intone the wazifa. For the beauty of their voices is thought to lead the senses astray, distracting from the purpose of prayer. <coughs> However, they do attend the evening wazifa in large numbers, seated on mats positioned away from the main circle of men chanting, silent but absorbed in the activity of deep listening. The wazifa is a sonic fingerprint of Tijan identity, yet its vocalization also reveals the disunity of the Tijaniya. The difference in intonation is deliberate. Varied vocal styles are developed for the very purposes of segregation and isolation. Sadiq, a disciple of the Faida, described the ways in which the voice is used to create different identities from the same fluid textual source. Quote, what is different is the manner with which we sing. It is the tone that is different. It is just a particularity, a specificity that permits one to distinguish who is who. The text is the same, but the manner that we recite is different. The diversity of tones, of styles, of modes of expressing things, each founder, like Sheikh Ibrahim, created his own tones. It is something in human nature. We all want to show exactly who we are, where we came from, the identity of a person. We sing the same things, but it is necessary to add a personal touch. End quote. In the Malakia branch, the singing of the wazifa is recognized for its simple descending melodies with little ornamentation. Voices dwell in the lower registers and are powered deeply through the chest. Men recite loudly, quickly, and in an even tempo, attacking words in sharp, highly respirated, percussive manner. Their vocal style exhibits such energetic forward momentum, such strict uniformity of tempo and volume, and such martial precision in intonation that French colonial authorities suspected the wazifa of being a song of war used by the Malakia to train military troops. 
According to disciples, the minimalistic style ensures correct pronunciation of Arabic words and clear articulation of unbroken phrases in their integrity. And this is um, the wazifa performed by a caliph general of um, the Malikiya, the beloved Abdul Aziz C. Dabakh. <laughs> Uh, let's try that. Okay, um, you'll hear him in the next slide. So, um, by contrast, the wazifa of the faida often unfolds in undulating, voluptuous, ornamented melodies. Let me just play um, the Abdulaziz. <laughs> So that's the Amalakia, and by contrast, the Vaida often unfolds in undulating, voluptuous, ornamented melodies, which many listeners associate with West African influences. The singing is softer and slower, with greater rhythmic flexibility and betraying a tone of nearly sorrowful contemplation. groups usually sing at a higher vocal register and engage a wider range of timbres, including vibrato, nasal resonance, and frequent shifts into head voice. Unlike the Malakia, Fida performances do not always favor a strict interlocking of the, musical and the of the musical and poetic meter, or the alignment of the beginning of melodic phrases with the beginning of grammatical phrases. One example of this is their choice of misaligning melodic and textual meter, in their distinctive vocalization of the Salato Fete. So you can kind of feel it at the beginning of the opposed to how you hear perhaps a more um, a, a recitation where the phrase, uh, the musical phrase aligns with the poetic phrase, as in, so here you feel the, the beginning of the poem aligns with what we feel as the beginning of the melodic phrase. Disciples of the Faida do not consider the metrical ambiguities of their performance to be evidence that musicality has subdued intelligibility, that vocal beauty has dominated textual meaning. Instead, disciples trace their stylistic choices to founder Ibrahim Yas, whose singing is believed to embody the veiled, esoteric, mystical meanings of text, 
beyond the mere grammaticism of the uninitiated. In addition to the dramatic contrast in vocal style, the Malakia and the Faida branches also diverge in the times chosen to recite the wazifa. Among the Malakia, the wazifa is recommended twice daily, at both pre-dawn and at dusk. This innovation was introduced in the 1900s by Malik Si after his installation at Tiwawon as a way of distinguishing his branch and rallying his, rallying his community more frequently, thus increasing Muslim presence within the French colonial town. Contrary to the Malakia, followers of Nyasa's Feda typically practice the wazifa only once daily, as was prescribed by Sheikh at Tijani. I think that's changing a bit now, but um, I think that was the original practice. However, Nyas changed the time of the wazifa from pre-dawn to dusk in order to increase membership among the youth he visited in Ghana, as they could not be convinced to go to the mosque and pray for an hour before sunrise. In both the Maliki and the Faida, these initial choices in vocal style and in ritual time were calculated to increase membership through what Bakari Sam calls a proselytism by song. However, the two branches shaped and attuned their voices in order to proselytize different audiences and appeal to dissimilar geographic regions, with Malik C. seeking to solidify the influence of his branch within colonial Senegal, thus gesturing at an emergent nationalism, pre-nationalism, while Ibrahim Yas aimed to expand the Faida beyond Senegal and into West Africa, thereby hinting at the cosmopolitan transnational agendas to come. Like the wazifa, hadra is a vocal practice that unites Tijani branches in ritual unity while simultaneously dividing them in acoustic, cultural, and political difference. Hadra means divine presence and refers to weekly um, gatherings for dhikr. Within the Tijaniya, the hadra is recommended for, on Friday afternoon following midday prayers, before sunset prayers. There is only one pillar, the repetition of la ilaha illallah 1,000 times or more. After this pillar, disciples can draw from diverse sources to complete their hadra, from the Quran, eulogies to the prophets or saints, or common Islamic invocations. Because of its unscripted nature, hadra offers a space for differentiation of Tijani groups through the construction of unique collages of musical sounds. The hadra I attended in, a hadra I attended in Dakar in 2012 demonstrates the ritual's potential for vocal distinction and musical bricolage. During the holy month of Ramadan, just before the setting of the sun and the breaking of the day's fast, I joined a group of Faida disciples in a relatively quiet corner of my neighborhood, in a small courtyard between dense rows of houses. The group, Daira El Ula, the first circle, was led by Ustez Ahmad Ba and consisted mostly of students under 30 years of age. The hadra began with men raising their voices to chant, there is no God but God. After 15 minutes had passed in the communal chanting of Hey Lala, Ustaz Ahmad conducted a medley featuring supplications, poems, and Quranic fragments woven into each other, intoned with tunes and rhythms from diverse musical traditions. In the first part of the medley, Ustaz Ahmad sang lines from Abba Qalb, I Refuse My Heart, an Arabic poem composed by Ibrahim Yas. Thank 
from Myas's poem, Voicing Ardent Desire for Closeness with the Prophet, Ustaz Ahmad immediately transitioned to verses of erotic love for a young woman. These were, verses were inspired by a poetic tradition originating from pre-Islamic Arabia during the 7th, 7th century, a tradition re referred to colloquially as Mejnun Layla, meaning the fool or madman for Layla. The re tradition recounts the tragic legend of a man named Kais and a woman named Layla, whose chaste and unrequited love for each other inspired Kais to poetic creativity, while also slowly driving him to madness. Layla was forced by her family to marry another man, leading Kais to forsake all human comfort and society and to seek a reclusive life among the beasts of the wilderness. And this is a miniature a 60, from the 16th century um, depicting scenes from um, the Persian poet Nizami Ganjavi's 12th century version, literary version of this um, poetic tradition. Within the Sufi mystical tradition, Kais represents the ideal lover, while Layla symbolizes the ultimate beloved, the divine source of truth. Conflating human desire with devotion to God, the Sufi tradition sees the arrows-driven madness of Kais as a state of spiritual trans transcendence, where illusory constructions of social reality, ego, and identity are unveiled and discarded. This transcendent state is called fana, which um, Aurelia spoke about, meaning the annihilation, and refers to the annihilation of self through all-consuming love of God. During the Hadra I attended, the specific verses that Ustaz Ba sang um, described Kaisa's descent into madness, which led him to kiss the walls of Layla's house because he saw in them her beloved face. The group then repeated La ilaha illallah over several West African melodies before Ustaz Ba shifts to um, a praise poem in Pular. I'm just going to play it this way. Sung in a pentatonic Mauritanian tune. Ba then moved on to an Arabic poem, also from Mauritania, but sung over a Hausa melody from um, Nigeria. Within 10 minutes of this hadra, Faida disciples fused the story of Mejnun Layla to West African poems in Arabic, to Mauritanian texts in Pulad, to Nigerian melodies, uh, to, house, um, to, to Nigerian melodies, Hausa melodies in Arabic, all interlaced with repetitions of Allah and La ilaha illallah, amalgamating various ethnic, linguistic, and musical traditions. The singing performs the dissolution of difference and the annihilation of self at the heart of mystical transcendence. If musical aesthetics were translated into political imaginaries, the singing can also be heard as rejecting the colonial mentalities and insular nationalisms which have divided Senegalese from Mauritanians, Nigerians, Nigerians, and other West Africans. Such rejections of nationalistic divisions would be consistent with the pan-Africanist and pan-Islamic ideologies championed by Ibrahim Yass 
As Usman Khan's research has shown, Nyas consistently asserted the need for a greater unity throughout continental Africa and across the Muslim world, those very geographies sung in the Hadra described earlier. The transnational border-crossing political visions of Ibrahim Nyas resonate today in the singing of his followers, in the acoustic cosmopolitanism of their liturgies. In performances of the Hadra, the Malakia and other Senegalese Tijani branches do not rival the Faida in the cultural and geographic range of sources. Indeed, most Hadarat performed by other branches consist strict of strict um, canonical prayer formulas and traditional Tijani liturgies in Arabic, repeated without great melodic variation. Within the past two decades, younger disciples of the Malakiya have begun to integrate Arabic poems written by El Hajj Maliksi and other Tijani luminaries into their Hadarat. Wool of praise poems have also become more common. These musical developments, however, still position the Malakiya as a Tijani branch tied closely to Senegalese identity and steeped in Islamicized wool of culture. Their sounds do not, like those of the Faida, expand the aesthetic and political engagements um, beyond national borders to non-Senegalese communities. Without the transnational reach nor the acoustic cosmopolitanism of the Faida, the Malakia has focused its vocal aesthetics and political ethics towards deepening and sustaining its engagements with immediate neighbors. From the time of French colonialism to the present moment, the Malakia has often played a crucial role in mediating the sometimes precarious relations between local communities and in a changing cast of political structures. Believing that religious communities could not thrive in a politically unstable state, Malik Si, the founder of the Malakia, encouraged policies of accommodation with reigning temporal powers. Following Si's example, subsequent leaders of the Malakia have also prioritized political accommodation and nation building. It is perhaps because of the Malakia's effort at harmonizing religious practice with national identity that it has become the largest Tijani branch in Senegal, one with notably productive relations with political institutions and other religious groups, such as the Catholic Church. The Malakia may seem to draw from a more, more limited palette of melodies and languages than the musically om omnivorous Fida branch, but the vocal nationalism of the Malakia, seen in their engagement with local communities within Senegalese borders, reflects an equally compelling political vision for post-colonial unity, one that both competes with and complements the acoustic cosmopolitanism of the Fida. Thank you. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. I, I always think there's going to be more time than there is, but we're not going to be able to ask our, our panelists to respond to each other, but I hope they'll find each other in the coming day and um, feel there's already a conversation begun. So we do have time for a few questions from the audience. Yes, please. Right, that's a really good question. Um, the specific 
um, kind of narrative that I quoted in that, she didn't necessarily articulate it as being sent by um, Sheikh Hamza from a kind of, um, in the context of recruitment. It was just kind of something that sporadically happened and that for her reaffirmed the authority of the Sheikh as like a valid Sufi Sheikh. So it was kind of, she was totally outside of the context and then it came and that is that dream is what kind of spoke to the validity. Um, this is a real Sufi Sheikh, this is a real Tariqa. Um, and so, but it's a really good kind of discussion to have um, in, in probing deeper into that. I, I didn't exactly um, see if she had more to say in terms of that. Yeah, thank yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Thank you. Yes, please. Hi, thank you all, this is a really great I want to read all of your papers. And, um, yeah, thank you, yeah, I really enjoyed this, this panel. Um, so I have a question for Ariella and for uh, Christine. My question for you was, you mentioned with the Kunta, there's some, something's changed, something's different from the Shadli tradition of Ahzab and Salawat, which mm -hmm. is really, and it's also somehow different or distinctive from the contemporaneous Tijani tradition and circulation. What is it that's different and distinct about the cosmology, about the practices um, that mm -hmm. you talk about? What is it that distinguishes this particular Kunta realm of theory and practice yeah. from those uh, that came before them and from other traditions uh, contemporary to them? And also, what is the role of Ibn and transmission in activating, accessing for these things to, to work, to be um, efficacious? If I can, I'd like to ask uh, Christine about the um, so you talked about the political and social dimensions of the different uh, melodies and rhythms of invocations. Um, did any of your respondents talk about the uh, spiritual efficacy of certain melodies or styles of recitations over others? I know, for example, in the Sahih the Shahada, there are different uh, Sufi groups who say you should emphasize the illa, mm -hmm. that particular put emphasis on there, or the Allah, or the la for different spiritual uh, reasons. The emphasis, the rhythm, the melody can be changed mm -hmm. for different uh, effect. Mm -hmm. Is that something your uh, interlocutors discussed? And if so, what do they have to say about this? Oh, yes, I'm sorry, I was the first one. <laughs> um, so those are excellent questions. So to start with, in terms of what is different, what is particularly distinct in terms of cosmologies and theories of practice from what came before, there has been um, insufficient research on theories of practice in um, kind of pre-modern Sufi historical context for me to answer this with complete certainty. Al-Jazuli's text in particular is distinctly lacking in cosmological and metaphysical references to Muhammad and his lights. Um, which is very distinctive from the Quintas Nafetatib. So uh, the Dalal Khairat talk about um, Muhammad as a means of accessing God's love, as a model, as an exemplar, um, and, and as, um, as a guide along the path. But for example, the Nafetatib talks about um, the role of the, uh, the, of the Hakikat and Muhammadiyah in the, in the period um, before creation, talks about um, different um, realms of existence and um, their different kind of cosmological and metaphysical alignments to a degree which is much, much more um, obvious and much more frequently invoked. Which leads me to suspect that the 
understanding of the link between um, supplicatory prayer and cosmology and Sufi metaphysical cosmology was not as um, kind of deeply implicated in um, the kind of uh, 15th and 16th century uh, Jizuli traditions. Um, and so I'll, I'll leave that part of that answer there. As for the role of Ivet, of Aden, in, of listening and um, oral transmission, there is absolutely a role that oral transmission played. You can see it um, represented in these texts in the ways that very, um, so backtracking. The Kunta texts, particularly Sidi Muhammad's work, the Fawad Noreniya, reveal more of the secrets of the, actually the name, the greatest name of God and of the, um, the Al-Qaf, the, um, the magical squares and the charts and the tables associated with that name and the specific litanies that you should use and the specific practices in order that you should use to perform them than any other text of the genre that I've seen. They redact very specific elements. So in one particular sequence of litanies, at various points, you're supposed to use one of the lesser names of God. And those lesser names are redacted and replaced with a series of two, three, or four vertical lines. You would have to access that code from a teacher in the lineage. So in this way, they can have a manuscript, manuscripts which travel farther than their individual voices and thus proclaim that they have mastery over these secrets, that they contain them, while at the same time ensuring that in order to fully um, implement these practices, you have to be part of their network. So I think um, orality and orality are absolutely integral components to the transmission of these texts, but also that the oral and oral components were not enough to understanding how this community understood practice and authority. Um, so much has been said about um, the oral nature of um, African Muslim practice, and I think orality is absolutely a key component that deserves proper emphasis, but the interactions between orality and textuality for the Kunta cannot be overlooked. Thank you, Ariella. Christine, I think you'll get the last word oh, in this panel. I'm sorry. Um, thank you for your question, and I think you did um, hint at something that does occur often in conversations, that when people t speak about sonorities or um, aesthetic style, um, it's not just a question of identity, so what, you know, one's place among men, but also of um, ethics or spirituality. So aesthetics is often a question of ethics. And people do speak, not only that they are following um, Ibrahim Yas's um, orders, for example, in, sing in singing a melody a certain way with a certain rhythm, but that, just as you said, by stretching the meters, by blurring certain words, by focusing on by beginning in the middle, where you think you should begin at the beginning, um, it stretches the mind to focus on different words. It stretches the mind to contemplate different meanings that might be only available through a very semantic, grammatical understanding of some things. And so I hear that often with um, Nyasen uh, disciples about. And as for the Malakia, um, often they will be boast also that their aesthetic style has an ethical purpose, has a spiritual elevation in that their clarity of pronunciation and their fidelity to aligning melodic meter with poetic meter um, uh, allows those who aren't even initiated to write down every single word in with correct, correct, correct um, punctuation 
of the text they, they read. So that becomes a mode of transmission of fidelity to the original text. Thanks. I'm sorry we won't have time to hear more questions, but I hope that you will seek out these presenters um, in coffee breaks and meals and other sessions. Um, I agree with uh, our questioner in the back here. This has been a marvelous panel. It's inspiring to be with scholars who love what they do as much as you all do. And the, the prayers and the songs and the dreams and the networks and routes emerging in the spaces in between um, have really given us a rich picture of the intellectual and spiritual life of West Africa and beyond. Um, so um, thank you all very much. Please join me in thanking our speakers. <laughs>